0: The Midnight Myth Podcast presents The Wheel of Ka, an exploration into Stephen King's epic The Dark Tower. This podcast is dedicated to discussion and analysis of The Dark Tower, a seven-book series written by the prolific American story slinger
1: Stephen King. Say thank you, Cy. But this year, there's something else as well, a sense of wrongness that no one can quite voice. Folks who never had a nightmare in their lives will wake screaming with them during the week of Fin de Año. Men who consider themselves peaceful will find themselves not only in fistfights, but instigating them. Discontented boys who would only have dreamed of running away in other years will this year actually do it. And most will not come back after the first night spent sleeping raw. There's a sense inarticulate but very much there that things have gone amiss this season it is the closing of the year it is also the closing of the peace for it is here in the sleepy outward barony of medjus that midworld's last great conflict will shortly begin it is from here that the blood will begin to flow and in two years no more the world it has been will be swept away it starts here from its field of roses, the dark tower cries out in its beast's voice. Time is a face on the water. Welcome back,
0: fellow travelers on the path of the beam. Long days, pleasant nights. Mm. The Wheel of Ka is hitting you with its six episodes. That's crazy. Six episodes That's of Wheel crazy. of crazy. And um Honestly, the response to this has been greater, better, and more positive than I could have wildly imagined. Yeah, really. So let me just take a minute and thank you, Wheel of Ka listeners. The path of the beam is long and treacherous, and Mm. treacherous, sorry. You got it. And the fact that you're traveling on it with us is so amazing. Mm. This podcast is for people who love the Dark Tower by people who love the Dark Tower. Oh, yeah. It's our quartet. You're our set. We are a digital kottet. That's it. And it's Ka, baby. Ugh. And it's coming like a cyclone. We are here to talk Wizard and Glass. Now, just a few preambles, things that you should know. This is the second Wheel uh, Wizard and Glass episode, pardon me. We did the first half of the book in episode five mm-hmm. of The Wheel of Ka. You have to have listened to that episode to listen to this. So don't oh, yeah. jump in here. We're not recapping anything because... Too much shit happens oh, in this so book. Oh, so much happens. We're going to jump right into the second half of and Glass. Which technically
1: we start at part three, come reap. So if, if you have read it or you're, you have the book in front of you, that's where we started the second half.
0: And if you haven't read this yet, please read it before you uh, listen to us. Yeah, you should buy it on Amazon, right? Or buy it from our Amazon affiliate that's link right? on www.midnightmyth.com. And uh, follow us on Twitter at the Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook at Midnight Myth Podcast, Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Website also has links to our Patreon. Give us money because we love you and we want to keep doing this. And uh, oh, lastly, there's a uh, shop, a store with really great Wheel of Commerce merch. With the release of this episode. There is going to be a new Dark Tower themed merch line Eesh, on our store. I'm psyched. Um, Laurel did a great job of oh, it. Yeah. So if you want to help us out and make it easier for us to bring more amazing Wheel of Ka, go to the merch store, buy one of our t-shirts, take a picture, tweet that picture at us. That when you have it, and we will mention you on our podcast. Do it. Alright, so enough shameless self promoting yeah. To the beam. Well, we're getting there at least. Yeah, to the beginning of the start of finding <sighs> the beam. Come reap. Um, I, I just re- really want to ask. We're finished, Wizard and Glass. Give me just your basics, Steve. How do you feel? Where are you at? I want to know your headspace before we get into the nitty and gritty. Well,
1: still my favorite book the reason why i fell in love with the series and and fell in love with it even harder the second time i think the book series is better the second time around um not not a, because i picked up a lot of things that i missed you know because the first time it's just like what the fuck is happening in this giant journey um i feel great i'm very excited to talk about this though this is most certainly the one of the hardest pieces to get through because a lot of Really fucked up shit happens to, to be very poetic and eloquent. There's some yeah, yeah. fucked up shit happens.
0: Major content trigger <laughs> warning. This yeah. is not for the faint of no, heart. This is not happy. People are going to
1: fucking die. Oh, lots of people are going to die. And strange mothers are going to lick corners. Right. And there's going to be vampires.
0: And already. Blood drinking vampires. There's a vampire. Which, all right, I, I'm totally with you. How I, do you feel? I love this book. When I did the series the first time, I said this last week, it was my favorite book. At the end of the third book, I was into it, but I had a little bit of fatigue on the narrative. Mm -hmm. And I really think at the end of this book, the reason I had fatigue on the narrative at the end of Wastelands was that I wanted to root for Roland. I really wanted to cheer him on, but I was still so uncertain about the motherfucker. I didn't know if he was a good dude. I didn't know what he had been through through to get him to be such a cold and ruthless killer. This book gave me everything I needed to allow myself to fall in love with Roland as a character.
1: And feel good about it. Absolutely. And feel like, you know, I have been rooting for this person uh, up to this point who did kill an entire town three books ago. And kill a child. And kill a child, right, willingly. And, you know, now we realize why that is. And, and, And the fact that, I mean, it starts very young for Roland. Absolutely.
0: And this to me is the story I needed to make sure that I could root for Roland to the bitter end. And at the end of this book, I love the character Roland more than when I started it. And I think from the series perspective, that's what this book needed to do. And that's what I, as a reader, needed it to do so that I could continue on with the rest of the series with enthusiasm and vigor and uh you know, enthusiasm and vigor are the only two words I wanted to say there. Well,
1: yeah, and, you know, I think there's only one thing that happens, and we'll get there because it's much later in the book, that that does make me sort of question Roland and like, briefly, mm-hmm. and then and then it's understood why. But other than that, I completely agree. I mean, I root for him completely. At the, he's my din at the end of this.
0: Absolutely. Um, a few things to, to say. We've done in other books is where we've started the, with the question, what is the Dark Tower? What does it mean? We're not going to do this at the start of the second half of Wizard and Glass. One, because where the Dark Tower comes in is a little more deeper at the end of the narrative. Right. And I think for most of the second half of this book, the Dark Tower is the same thing as the first half. Mm-hmm. So if you want to know what our thoughts are on that, go back and listen to the last week's episode. And I think for the most part, Kai is the same. It's a cyclone.
1: It's a storm. Yeah, and I think this is where the storm hits its climax. It's the it's the biggest. It's coming. Ka is a storm, it's a wind, and I, I think that it's a great representation of that. It's going to be crazy.
0: Totally. The second half of this book is a fucking crescendo. <sighs> oh, the whole thing, yeah, Just yes. Just building, yes. building and building and building and building. To then the it, fortissimo! And then it has this huge reap day insanity, and then we get to see the aftermath yeah. with our original quartet and what they're dealing with. Yeah, all right, so let's let's dive into the nitty-gritty. Let's do it. Let's uh, roll up our sleeves and start getting into work, getting to work, I should say, and let's talk all things this book. One of the first things I'd like to bring out, to bring attention to, was the very start of the second half of the book, Roland and Susan are in the full swing of their romance. Right. And King gives a few paragraphs describing that to start off in the very first chapter of the second half And he uses some specific language, language that I think frames their romance as one, one, fundamentally boring by everyone that's observing it, including us, and two, more like an addiction. I'd like to highlight a quick quote, if you'll permit me. Sure. They met in the Willow Grove and several of the abandoned boathouses, which stood crumbling at the northern hook by the bay. In the herder's hut far out in the desolation of the coups, in an abandoned squatter shack hidden in the bad grass. The settings were, by and large, as sordid as any of those in which addicts come together to practice their vice. But Susan and Roland didn't see the rotting walls of the shack or the holes in the roof of the hut or the smell of moldering nets in the corners of the old soaked boat houses. They were drugged, stoned in love, and to them, every scar of the face of the world was a beauty mark.
1: Yeah, Stephen King is a great way of describing addiction. He really
0: does. He does. And one of the filters that I think I'm having that I'm developing time two of The Dark Tower was how much many parts of this book are about addiction. Mm -hmm. And not this book, the entire series. Absolutely. Are about dealing with addiction. So in book one, we have it a little more wild, adolescent- Addiction isn't a main theme, but we get the sense that Roland is hooked on something. Book two has Eddie hooked on heroin, and it has Eddie accusing Roland of being addicted to the tower. Book three, we have Eddie finally overcoming the ghost of his brother that culminates in defeating Blaine the Mono, finally putting his addiction to the past. And then here we are in book four, where Roland's first addiction was Susan, and Susan's first and tragically only addiction was Roland. I've never heard young love described in those terms.
1: No. I I do like that he, you know, the first line is, true love like any other strong and addicting drug is boring. And it it is. It's routine. And, and, And it's funny, you know, I do appreciate the love story that Roland and Susan have because I do think it's it's true, but it is very young. And being a person who's been in a long-term committed relationship for 11 years, it, it I understand what that feels like, but reading it is kind of like, okay, um, it's beautiful. But I agree to an extent with the cynicism of King here and that it is kind of boring. Well, book one, the first half of this book, pardon me,
0: is very much a romance. Oh, yes. And once we oh, get yes. to the second half, mm. now that the romance is done, it's just like, yeah, this is no longer a romance. No. This is now full on a tragedy. Right. They're, they have an illicit romantic relationship, one in which that if they get caught, they'll have serious repercussions. Mm-hmm. And like addicts doing a drug, they're finding all of the places that they can get away living in the underbelly of Mages County and or Mages Barony, pardon me. And it is a interesting, just sort of flip being switched, or, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry, switch being flipped. <laughs> yeah, pardon me. Right, you, you following me? Absolutely.
1: Hopefully, you are at home too. <laughs> <laughs> We're professionals, <laughs> but I I do think the king has you know a particular sense of addiction with him being an addict himself, and and maybe part of writing this book is himself working through addiction. I mean, I can't speak for him and I'm not looking to be his psychiatrist, but it does very much feel that way. And, and, and you're right. I mean, there's, you know, later on, he, he becomes addicted to cigarettes and we also have people in, in this book addicted to sex and addicted to that feeling addicted to the rush addicted to, you know, we see it when, with weed eaters, we see it with people chewing on the, you know, the devil's weed or the devil's grass
0: and we happen. see we see Coral Thorin becoming right. an alcoholic. Right. There's a whole chapter about how all she's trying to do is get to the bar and drink, and she thinks nobody knows that right. she's an alcoholic, and, and everybody, everybody knows. knows. Right.
1: Yeah. Right. And so I think addiction definitely rules it. And it's but it is interesting to talk about true love, true love, not just love, but what we what we think is true love as as being addictive, and it paints the romance. In a
0: fundamentally tragic narrative if you thought for any second that this was going to be about two young lovers overcoming all odds to be together well it's like any drug right and and like anyone who has ever used drugs or known anyone who's used drugs or known
1: anyone who's abused them and abused them too much it never ends well no no and it's hard You know, it's hard for everyone. And I think this leading back to Roland, you know, in the end, being alone all the time. And so I feel like the reason why he's so addicted to Susan is because he finally finds somebody who he he can truly be his empathetic self with. And that's something I see throughout this entire book is that I think the reason why I love Wizard in Glass so much is because we get to see the empathetic side of Roland before the world has moved on before he makes some pretty key decisions, which we'll get into. This is the point in time where we really get to see a young, true Roland before his entire heart is closed off.
0: Totally. Can we talk a little bit too on that point? Yeah. When the romance is in the thick of it, the conflict between Cuthbert and Roland, Because I saw so many things in this conflict. One, I saw myself as a young man who had like a best friend who was really into a girl that you knew was wrong for him. Absolutely. Right, as Cuthbert and being like, dude, this is really not going, your like, and wanting to shake your friend out of it, like
1: this is dangerous, you know? But even though Cuthbert also fell in love with her immediately. And what's interesting is I have personal connection to that. I mean, I I had in high school, you know, I was in love with the very first person I was ever in love with. And my best friend in high school ended up dating that person. And so like, rough brother. Yeah. Well, it was crazy. You know, like having to watch that every single day and like put a smile on my face because I was good friends with both of them. You do. I, I feel for Cuthbert in this book. I absolutely feel for him, you know, can I ask
0: Cuthbert's anger? Because Elaine is not as angry at, at Roland as Cuthbert. Elaine kind of trusts that Roland is still the leader of the Katet and hasn't abandoned the cause of the gunslingers and the affiliation and mm-hmm.
1: Gilead. And I think because of the touch, he's the most empathetic of the three of them. That is very true because yeah. he kind of sees what everyone is feeling. He's the least killer. He is the least killer in him. What of I find. A-
0: absolutely. And what I find very interesting, Cuthbert culminates where he assaults and punches, he sucker punches Roland to try to say like, Hey, we need to be doing something. There is a really really crazy plot for John Farson, the good man happening here. And this is really dangerous. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? Skipping out and making love to this
1: beautiful young woman. We need our leader to focus. Like I get it, but we need you to fucking focus Roland.
0: But Roland also says to Elaine and to Cuthbert, like you think I haven't, but I have, I have, I, you think I have lost focus, but I haven't. And that's the thing.
1: And he doesn't. And when you get to the end of the book, and, and the, the whole giant plan takes place, you, you come to realize like, oh, fuck, I was wrong about
0: Roland too. And, and I do think Cuthbert is in the wrong in their conflict. I really do. I don't think he's in the wrong in the way that, uh, you know, some of the most morally fucked up people in history, like he's not wrong the way that Adolf Hitler is wrong, right? For like sure. he's not repugnantly wrong. Like I see where he's coming from and I feel... Like, if I were in Cuthbert's position, and I'm probably a little more Cuthbert like than Roland like, if I'm being honest. Absolutely. I'm more Elaine than any of them. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to be more Roland.
1: Absolutely. I'm not
0: the the strong silent type. That's not me. I'm going to crack a joke as soon as things get tense. (laughs) Right. 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 right.
1: And I'm going to cry about it.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And so I've also been in Cuthbert's position in my life. So I'm very empathetic to the idea of like, watching a friend go down a self-destructive romance and trying to stop them. And one, the thing that I think Cuthbert needs to learn is he had to get his anger out at Roland. Roland was so gracious in the fact that he allowed his friend to hit him and clock him gunslinger fucking hard. Yeah. Like it wasn't just a tap. Mm -mm. And he realizes that, okay, what Roland's mistake was with Cuthbert, I think strategically for the plan as gunslingers was that he needed to communicate with Cuthbert what he was really thinking while still doing what he was doing with Susan. Right. And I think that was his mistake is he held too much back. And I think he's holding too much back because he knows Cuthbert is going to want to stop the romance in order for more
1: action. Sure. Sure. And I think when we see later on, well in time later on, but technically in earlier books, we see Roland not withhold information from Eddie and Susanna and Jake as much, most likely because of how much he withheld from Cuthbert.
0: Right. He will say, I'm not ready to tell this yet, or I don't know the answer yet, but I will. And he does. And he does every time. Absolutely does. Whereas in this one, he completely holds everything back, what he's doing and why. And Roland can multitask. He can be with the woman he loves while planning to take out the big coffin hunters. Right. Right, and I think once that scene happens, and they ha- they have that meeting in the mausoleum in the graveyard, that is a pivotal pivotal point because we talked about in preparation in some of our debates whether or not like love is the undoing. Right, and right. I came to the conclusion no because Roland loves Susan. A, he gets confirmation that there's too many horses at the drop. Mm-hmm. B. They get that scene in the mausoleum. Well, and hold on, before then, they get the ability to tour, sit, go, and see the oil fields. Right, and then in the mausoleum, Elaine uses the touch to bring out the fact that there is a piece of Merlin's glass at Rhea of the Couzes. and they, because of Roland's love, they have the tools and the ability and the knowledge to actually combat all of these threats they're seeing here in Hambury. Yeah, no, I agree.
1: I definitely agree. I did think, I really did think at the, at the start of this, that, that love was Roland's undoing. And, and there's still, I do still think there's a little piece of it there because the truth is like, if he had never met Susan, right? If we could do this, you know, if we're going to theorize, if he never met Susan, they came to do what they did. They stayed in Hambry for a little while and they stayed out of it. Nobody had to die. Everybody leaves. But so there is something about Ka bringing those two people together, but I don't see it like I did originally. That's for sure.
0: This is true. And, but also in that counterfactual, uh, the good man gets all of the oil Mm -hmm. arms, his weapons with it. Roland never goes on the quest of the tower and presumably the multiverse ends. Yeah. Yeah, So, so. you know, so like at this point in the story, we don't really know, but we get the sense that, you know, the, the multiverse would be gone then. Yeah, Sure. And so this plays out the way it has to in many ways. Because it's Ka. Because it's Ka. Beautiful. Beautiful.
1: Um, what else you got from the beginning of the second half here? I mean, not too much. That 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 pretty much caps it, I think. I mean, we we do learn a little bit more about Rhea of the Coos, you know, and we learn a little bit more about the Wizard's Glass and that it it, it is basically a crystal ball, but it's... It, it very much you want to talk about addiction i mean anybody that t- touches it cannot help but look into it right and you know we start to realize there's a little bit more to her than than just being a witch there's a little bit more to her background she sees all of this happening through the wizard's glass i mean really if if there's anybody here who who's kind of the puppet master in all of this it would be her I mean, from the moment that, that, that Susan disobeys her, and from the moment that Roland kills her snake, she's got it out for the two of them. She's got it out for the two of them.
0: Would you call her, then, the main antagonist of this narrative?
1: I think, I think she shares it with her and, her and Jonas, Jonas Eldred. I, I do think that it's shared between the two of them. I think yeah. he's the more practical. He's the bad guy. He's the he is the one we need to get rid of to get out of this town. But I think Rhea is that insidious underbelly. This is Jonas is very much of this world, and Rhea is very much of the world that's moving on. And I think they represent both sides of that coin.
0: Right, Jonas. I, I totally agree. Jonas is a ruthless mercenary. We can kind of understand where he's coming from, and we can kind of empathize with him, even
1: if we don't agree. Yeah. I mean, we learn through the book that that he's an exiled gunslinger. He was a former gunslinger. So at one point in time, he did hold Gilead, and that code, and that code of being a knight and having those ethics was once important to him. What he was exiled for, we don't know. It doesn't matter. We don't need to know that.
0: I imagine he failed his trial. Cause didn't they say court's father broke his leg? Yeah. Yeah. So I imagine he failed his trial. And they of just manhood. kicked him out.
1: Yeah. And so for the rest of his life, he's just trying to prove to himself that he's actually a gunslinger.
0: The, the uh, gunslinger training is very much like the Spartan agogi. If you're not familiar out there, dark tower listeners in Sparta, they had a military training where if you are a Spartan male citizen, when you were born, they would actually, if you've seen the movie 300, they do a very good job articulating what it's like. Mm. They would have someone physically inspect the infant. If they suspected that the infant couldn't hack it, they would kill the infant. Mm. And that would be the end of you. And then from the moment you could walk, they started training you in combat. And then at a, at the age right around the time when you're about to hit puberty, they would rip you from your mother's arms put you into a military training facility that was like court with oh, Roland.
1: Yeah. That's very, very similar. And absolutely
0: brutal. You would have to do terrible things all in service of Sparta. And it bred the some of the greatest warriors of the ancient world. The Spartans are still legendary today, so much so that it inspired a thing like 300. Right, right. And I get the sense that Jonah just couldn't quite hack that part of it. And because of that, his leg is broken and he goes west. And as Roland says, no matter where
1: he goes, his soul will always be west. You know what's crazy I just thought about? They explained that he has a limp. Oh, yeah. So that broken leg never healed. Yep. Holy shit, dude. I'm just realizing that right now, real time. Oh, yeah. Wow, that's crazy. He, oh, yes. Yeah. So so he literally has to live with this scar for the rest of his life. Since why he would become a, a bank robber and a killer, and, and and he's an exile. There's no going back. So he chooses, obviously chooses the, the dark side.
0: If you'll permit me a little historical tidbit on that. Please. If we understand the coffin hunters, you call them bank robbers, essentially mercenaries, guns for hire to the highest bid. In the ancient world, being a mercenary, in particular the ancient Greek and Roman world, Not a bad thing. Actually, a noble profession. If you were a good warrior and the people you normally fought for, e.g. your polis or the Roman military, were at peace and you needed to feed your family, you had to go out and fight for someone. Mm. It's not until the collapse of the ancient world and the rise of the medieval world and the rise of the idea of a chivalric knight, where we get the idea that you have to fight for a code. You must be the best fighter that you can be, but it must be for a code. And it's interesting that we see so many um, medieval, especially King Arthur, both Britain and France, romantic language around gunslinging. We have Arthur Eld, which is a stand in for Arthur. We have Merlin as a stand in for uh, Merlin. We have Merlin's Rainbow. We have all of these like little remnants of the King Arthur legend in this, in particular in the second half of this book, and then we have the one of the main antagonists, Jonas, as a mercenary, mm-hmm. as a man fighting without a code. ...as the worst type of fighting that you could do.
1: Right, and he's also fighting for John Farson, for the good man. So he is, I guess, considered a rebel, too. I mean, against the establishment. Is he? I get the sense he's fighting for money, man. I mean, he probably is. Does he believe in the good man's cause? I mean, I don't know if he necessarily believes it like it's scripture, but he believes it enough that he thinks he's going to get paid off in the end to do this. There are several
0: points where jonas realizes he's in over his head and he thinks to himself usually when this happens i just leave but man it's so much money yeah and the good man's really powerful if i just leave the good man will probably find me and you know what these feelings of doom that i'm about to die are probably just me being anxious so let the best thing to do is just to continue with my conspiracy
1: yeah I, i definitely don't disagree I don't disagree. I do think he's a hired gun. I don't, think he's a, I don't think he's, by any stretch of the imagination, a knight for John Farson. Right. Yeah, no, I don't think so.
0: Unlike Letigo. Right. Who right. is like, right. Letigo's like, I'm here for the good man. Sure. And I'm fighting for the good man, and I'll do whatever I have to do for the good man to win. The coffin hunters are like, these are the people we hired to go get the shit we need. Right. We'll pay them. Maybe we won't kill them, you know? Um, Jonas is a very fascinating character. Absolutely. And we get so many good chapters in the second half here with Jonas. I think the second half of this book has a few like penultimate right before the, the main reap like climax moments. And I think when Jonas catches Roland off his guard and arrests
1: him is one of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this is the one time that he's going to have a leg up against Roland. It's the only time.
0: And Roland is convinced they're going to come the the day of reaping, and it's the day before reaping they come. And Roland vows, if he lives through this, that no one will ever take him like that again. Never. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also the, like, castles is over now. Now it's
1: war. Right. And I do think it also shows Roland's ability to actualize things. Okay, I made a mistake. I'm going to reset. I'm going to learn from it. And that mistake is not going to happen again. And it doesn't. It never does.
0: Yeah. I will. If I live out of this, this, this mistake cannot be replicated or I die. Right. And I deserve to die because I made a
1: mistake. The one thing that Roland is, is, is true. I'm not going to say he's always honest, but he is true. He is true to his word. He is true to the things. If Roland says he's going to do it, it's going to fucking happen. I mean, like, to point out Cuthbert's conversation with him, Roland was like, look, I had it. I got it. Maybe I didn't tell you, but I had it under control. And he did. That's, the, like, one of the biggest moments when you realize that he does have it under control. Like, I will never question Roland ever as, when we move on from this book. I mean, maybe not ever. Never say never. But f- for now, I have more trust in Roland than I ever did before. Interesting.
0: That's a really, I'm like, I'm, I'm mulling through this point.
1: Roland is true. He
0: is. But not always honest. Not
1: always honest. No, because sometimes honesty is not the best policy when you're trying to protect people you love. Like, sometimes letting Jake know what the honest truth is is not the best thing for him. Early on, being completely honest with Eddie about Henry was not the right time or place to do that. And Roland, you know you know what I think? Roland calls himself in this book, he says, I'm slow, but I'm not stupid. He says, I'm slow, and even my father knew that, but I'm not stupid. And I think the thing that I always think about with Roland, or forget, really, to be honest, is that when he's a killer, I just see a killer. I don't see a tactical killer. I don't see somebody who actually he does think about it first. He does use his brain first. And I do think taking that back to him being true, Roland will always do what he thinks is right. He is true to himself and to everyone else around him, but he's not always honest. I love that. I
0: like the way that you are phrasing that very much. And where I think you're really hitting the home run is that Roland is a knight. He is the knight of the affiliation. Mm -hmm. He is a knight on a quest for the tower, and he will hold true to those principles. And that means... He will use violence when he has
1: to. That means
0: he will complete his
1: quest at all costs. No matter what or who. That's another thing to think about when I say true and not honest. Right. It, it, not always honest, because he is an honest person. But but being true, and, and especially you hit it right there, is that he is true to nothing else. He's true to the tower.
0: And he's true to his quest. Mm-hmm. And he will try to do as little harm as possible to accomplish this, like a good chivalric knight who is on a quest for the Holy Grail or a quest to defend King Arthur, mm-hmm. they will do as much as they can to avoid all of the pitfalls that you see in characters like Reynolds, De Pape, and mm-hmm. Jonas, mm-hmm. who will kill a young, you know, developmentally, cognitively disabled young man just for fun. Yeah. Roland would never do that. Never once. He would rather die than do that. Mm-hmm. But if throwing an innocent child into a pit of despair helps him get to the
1: next phase of the quest, he will also do it. He'll do without it without thinking about it because so, he's true to himself. He really is. I mean, to anybody, he's true to himself. And he's not a
0: sadist. No, he doesn't get off on it. No. One of the differences between him and uh, Walter, the Man in Black, is the Walter delights in playing oh, he games. He loves it. He enjoys torturing mm-hmm. people. He enjoys saying, Hey, you want to know what happens after death? Just whisper this word to this friend I brought back to the dead just to torture them. Right. If Roland knew the secret of what happens after death, he would never tell anyone unless he had to. He would never use that as a game over someone.
1: And you know, one of the examples there is when he hypnotizes people. He really doesn't like to use that bullet trick where he, I mean, he has to hypnotize Susan in this part of the book to figure out what was going on. And at first he's like, you know, I don't not to the woman that I love more than anything right now, but he needed the information for his quest. And what's he true to? He is
0: true to his quest. And that sometimes means he will not always be honest. Brilliant. And in this book, his quest is to stop the, good man from getting this oil at all costs. And in this, he shows cunning skill and guile beyond a young man of his years ever would or could. Yeah. I mean, he's 14. I'd like to draw attention to something if this is okay. Yeah. So Roland does fuck up and get arrested. And thanks to Susan, Susan legitimately saves the gunslingers. They are all going to die on Reaping Day and get burned alive if it wasn't for the fact that Susan, with the help of Shimi, disguises herself as a cowboy and kills Avery and kills Deputy Dave. Oh, yeah. In one of the best described scenes, I think, in the entire book, um, how she lights her hat on fire accidentally and how she realizes, my God, this is not my arena, but I'll do anything for Roland... Another reason why Susan is one of the most well-drawn, sophisticated characters.
1: Which is nice. And I think we should... It's nice to have a woman be a strong character and to see King actually come through and prove us wrong.
0: Yes. Because we have been vocally critical of the female characters up until this point. And not the characters themselves, but in some of the decisions in the plot King has made. And this one, I've got nothing.
1: No, I mean she's completely fleshed out. She's strong from the beginning. She's confident. You know, her father's fucking murdered by by people who who work with him directly, by people who she trusts or at one point in time trusted. I mean, her aunt was probably involved. You know, we talk about that the point where you know she goes in to get her dad's journal and there's pages ripped out, which you enlightened me to earlier. And you know, yet through all this, she persists. Throughout the whole thing, every step of the way. And and you know, I I don't want to say in the situation that that her love for Roland is cheap, like that's why she's doing things, because I don't necessarily think that's the entire reason. I think there is retribution for her father's murder. I think she hasn't felt I mean, she's been fucking sold to the mayor by her aunt for some land. That's fucked. I mean, who wants to live that life? You know, so she's about to be raped. And And impregnated against her will to give some child to some old dude who who gets killed in this in this section, he gets fucking murdered by the big coffin hunters. See ya. He's out. Thank goodness she doesn't have to go through that. Oh yeah, I mean, she's going to get burned alive by her whole town, which is <laughs> yeah, you we- know I you know, Derek, and I told you this, and I'm going to tell all of our listeners this that I was sitting on a septibus to work while I was reading that chapter and I openly sobbed like a baby just open. Like it was the way they explained that scene of her just blindly accepting her death and that she didn't feel any pain in the flames. She just, she just felt an intense love and connection for Roland where she's screaming his name out to and then he sees it in the wizard's glass. And the only thing that he can scream is no. And then King describes moments later that he's not even saying no anymore. He's just making guttural fucking sounds. Yeah,
0: I think since you have touched on this, let's talk about Susan. Let's talk about her fate. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about what happens. I I want to say this. Uh, in the last episode, I mentioned how sad it is to me that Susan never gets a female ally in the first half. In the second half, Oh, she, she does. F- she finally gets the most unexpected of allies in Olive Thorne.
1: I know. That's crazy.
0: And Olive Thorne's husband, who was going to cheat on his wife with Susan Delgado to bear a child, who crawls into his bed before he gets murdered. Uh. With a bad dream, which is so reminiscent of what happens to Julius Caesar, which is articulated through a few sources, one of which is William Shakespeare, that Caesar's wife said, "Uh, Beware the Ides of March, I'm having a bad dream, that she's a bad dream of a bird. And then what does the husband do who doesn't even notice the wife is there? He has a bad dream of a bird. And what happens when he gets killed and he gets his eyes ripped out? They put Cuthbert's bird head skull on him.
1: Such amazing writing. So very great. I would just like to point out that you got to talk about the Spartans, Julius Caesar and Shakespeare in this episode,
0: man, this is how I roll. (laughs) Thank you. And I want to say this. Thank you, Stephen King. Yeah, for real. Yeah. For giving
1: me the ability to,
0: to link all
1: these things together. You know, it's, it's a tough thing to read about Olive because we, she is the character that gets talked about the least. And we know the least about her. And the first time I read the book, it was really hard for me to believe that Olive would actually do this to Susan, would actually be her ally. But the second time around, the one thing that Olive is always categorized as is as an em- empathetic person. She she somehow gets the way the game is played. No matter how much it kills her, she's going to stand by her husband and and... She knows that she has no control anyway. I mean, and, it's very clear in this society, as it's been in our own history, that, that women have really no say, not much power. To, I mean, it depends on the woman. They can be business owners. But as far as the as the way the society is run, it's very much a, a fucking patriarchy society. Yeah,
0: I was going to say it's super patriarchal. Yeah. And Olive... I so think, is ours. <laughs> and I think Olive is a empathetic character. And I think Olive realizes she's one of the few people outside of the main sphere that realize what little choice Susan has. Yep. And she also is one of the few people that realizes that Reimer was a slime ball, that the coffin hunters were slime balls. And as long as they were put, like patting the pockets of the mayor, he didn't give a shit what they did. Right. She knew that her husband, despite that she loved him was a shitty mayor was or a, slime a ball. shitty Lord and knew that he was a shithead. And when all this is coming, crashing down, she's just
1: like, no, no.
0: the 16-year-old girl's not a fucking murderer.
1: And we're going to save her. And I'm going to do whatever I can to save her. And
0: just when you think that there's a chance that Susan's getting out of this mess Mm -hmm. and that her demise, we Dark Tower readers, we followers on the path of the beam, know is coming, we know she won't live, but we, we... Me, I fooled myself in thinking... Yeah, me too. Twice... That maybe she could get out of this jam, mm-hmm. And as it turns out, Rhea of the Coos, with the power of the glass, knew so many moves before other, were, other people were playing. She's the ultimate castle
1: player yeah. because she saw all the moves ahead of time. I mean, she's the puppet master. That's, why I said, that's what I referenced earlier because she, I mean, through this hideous magic, controls everything.
0: Through the burning of Susan which I think you articulated very well how horrible it is, but how
1: beautifully well-written it is. I mean, her own aunt called, ye bitch, just looks at her and... I mean, you did mention, I, I do think she's under Rhea's influence for sure, but could you imagine just, like, having somebody in your family that you've lived with, you've grown up with, you've trusted, you've loved, is sets the the, the pyre first, even before Raya does. I mean, she fucking gets up there and... Lights that sucker on fire. When
0: when Cordelia curses Susan with Ash, mm. Susan forgives her. Yeah. And that- this is this is what, what happens. Yes. I do believe that what we are seeing, why this tale matters, because we can talk about how we enjoy it, we can talk about how we consume it. We can talk about why it matters for the dark terror dark tower narrative, pardon me, writ large and what it matters to the character Roland and why I love it because Mm -hmm. it helps me love Roland. But does this story matter on its own in a larger sense? And I think the narrative that I take away from is that there is a veneer of civilization in the city of Hanbury. The barony of magus is on the brink of collapse Mm -hmm. and people are pretending they're going through the motions of being a civilized and cultured society When in reality, they're char you motherfucking tree.
1: Right. I mean, every year they, they, they sacrifice, you know, these stuffy guys, these, these scarecrows essentially. And yet this year they, they've taken it so far as to sacrifice a human being. And in, and I think there's a broader point
0: about leadership all of the people that could have potentially put a stop to Susan being killed are dead or gone. Mm -hmm. So you have the mayor murdered. You have his assistant Ryma murdered. You have the big coffin hunters who could potentially step in, step in. I mean, they are the
1: murderers of the first two,
0: but they're gone. You have Sheriff Avery and his number one deputy. They're gone. You have the affiliation boys that everybody up until now loved and and respected out fighting a battle on the outskirts of town. And in this leadership void, this hurt and failing citizenry, what and who do they turn to? Rhea.
1: Rhea, right. And vampiric witch.
0: While we reflect on this, when we are in hurt, when we are in pain, and when our own civilization is but a veneer to dark and terrible impulses, and there's no one around to fill that leadership gap, we must be mindful of the Rhea's who say it's so easy. All we have to do to cure this hurt. All we have to do to stop our own pain is burn this other.
1: I mean, we're sort of living through a piece of that right now in and our I, own country.
0: And I think, I think many cultures have and many times and many places that they have decided rather than face the fact that there's a deep rot in their civilization, whether that rot is a corrupt lord, or the Lord's corrupt mercenaries, or a civil war on the outskirts that you are profiting off of rather than standing up for and taking a side in. You know, all of these corrupt influences that have rotted out this uh this county, this barony, this city from the core, rather than facing up to them, most people are forgetting and ignoring them. And in that pain and in that anger, they turn to Charyutri. Mm -hmm. They turn to death. And this is where we learn where the name Charlie the Choo Choo comes from. Char means death. Mm -hmm. Charlie means death. Mm -hmm. And this is the one of the most prevailing themes of the entire series. Death. Yeah. Everywhere
1: for everything. Except for one. Roland. Death. Not for you, Roland. Not for you. This was said way early on. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to read the rest of this book series if this narrative hadn't happened. And, I, and I, obviously, I mean, if, if, if King didn't decide that the middle book was going to be about Roland, truly, we wouldn't... Be, because we do get to a point where it's like, why do I give a fuck about him? Why do I care about him? And I'll tell you something. One of the reasons why I care about him... Honestly, is because I'm reading a fantasy novel and an adventure novel, and and he's a fucking tank. He's a killer. Which leads me into the next thing I'd actually like to talk about. Do it. I would like to talk about what happens, the big event at the end of the book. I mean, the way that these three 14-year-olds kill a hundred people. Yep. You know? I Let's mean, we talk see this. We, we we talked earlier about how Roland ha- has known his plan pretty much for a while. And and we come to find out that he's gonna set all of these oil tankers on fucking fire. He's going to blow them all up and he's going to lead all these people into the cave where the thinny is. And the whole time I'm like, how are they, how are they going to pull this off? Like how, how?" I have no idea what Roland is is really up to, which is, he's a mystery. I mean, I mean, even though we know a lot about him now, he's going to be mysterious. There's a piece of Roland that there will always be mystery. True but not honest. Absolutely, and I think up. I think right now, with his first head, his truest friends. I mean, with Cuthbert and Elaine. You know, you talked earlier about if we're talking military tactics. The first, the first time when they first start this and they initiate the battle, Cuthbert takes out five different people with a fucking slingshot and steel bullets. I mean, just like. Puts holes in people's head, he's taken people down silently until Roland has to charge in. They've been found and and now the gunfire starts, and in like six pages, they kill thirty people. I mean but b- fucking three kids, three kids now, I know we talked about this earlier. Derek and I had one point of contention before we recorded this podcast where we talked about how. I I still consider these the three of them boys. They don't consider themselves boys, rightfully so. But everyone else around them refers to them as boys. I mean, they're 14. They're fucking killing 100 people. With, they're 14.
0: My counter-argument to that, and, and it's not that you're wrong. No,
1: and your counter-argument makes
0: sense. But where you are in your life is largely decided by the culture and rituals and standards of the society not that you're in, not necessarily your age. Yeah, right. and Roland has passed his test of manhood and has proven to be a gunslinger, which makes him a man. The other two are on the precipice of this, and my ultimate point is that when a world is on the verge of moving on, mm-hmm. you can ill afford children, and mm-hmm. less of all, you, you or rather, uh, let me amend that, you can ill afford childhood. But what certainly doesn't exist is adolescence. Adolescence is a luxury of modernity that says, you're not quite an adult, but you're not quite a child. We can let you figure this out for a few years.
1: And I feel like I don't have that. Right. And you're and see, that's the thing I think that was missing because you're absolutely right in our original conversation because you're absolutely right. And the way that I look at it being a fucking white kid in America, I looked at him as being 14. I thought about myself as a freshman in high school. Okay, my first day of freshman year, we had a brand new high school. I walked in with a little trumpet case. I had no idea where I was. I was the definition of green. Like, Roland and I could not be further apart. So I agree with you there. But there is a piece of me that still read this and thought, like, could I have done that at 14? Fuck no. But that's the point. I know, and that's why they're adults.
0: And how far this world has already moved on. Before it's quote-unquote moved on.
1: And I definitely think there was a piece of me that was like, he's blissfully ignorant. I mean, uh, up until this point, I look at a 14-year-old, or at least me, as being completely ignorant. I mean, Roland has much more life experience at 14 than I do at 32. (laughs) (laughs) But there's something in my brain that just can't get over the fact, like a, a, a pubescent, like barely pubescent human could could with his two best friends kill a hundred people
0: and one of the most my one of my most favorite parts of this entire second half of this book was when jonas jonas realizes pardon me what's going on uh, and he turns and sees roland and he sees arthur eld reborn
1: right he's right right and the two thing the, the thing that they share which I always thought was interesting was those piercing blue eyes. But the thing that separates Jonas and Roland is that Roland is true. And Jonas is not. And Roland, when it
0: comes to combat is Arthur L reborn, which is another way to say that he is legendary in the way he fights. Oh. He fights like a warrior poet. He fights like the greatest fighter that has ever fought. And even a tough old mercenary, no one will say that Jonas is soft. No, not at all. You can make a lot of critiques and arguments about why Jonas sucks. But soft is, is not one of them. He's not soft.
1: And I'll tell you, you know, the one thing it's interesting that you bring up Roland being a legendary fighter. The one thing that King constantly describes about Roland is how quick he is at the draw. He's blindingly fast. And I don't know why that always sticks with me when I read it. Well, several
0: characters say that he moves so fast they can't see his movements. He's like a mirage.
1: Right. He's like a living mirage.
0: Right. It's insane. And they slaughter all of their enemies and and whoever they don't slaughter... They lure into the trap of the thinny, I, I who say, all we, commit suicide yeah, thinny style. Like, can
1: we talk about just for a quick second how brilliant and 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 sadistic that actually is? Like Roland at fourteen is like, I'm gonna I'm gonna lure fifty plus people into this cave, into the thinny, and they're gonna willingly kill themselves. I'm not actually gonna kill them myself. I, I, I took care of the first thirty people that needed that, but the last you know fifty to seventy people. I'm going to blow up all these fucking oil tankers. I'm going to make a big scene. No one's going to know about it. And then we're going we're gonna to burn all this grass so they can't breathe. So they're fucking choking. And then they run into this cave. And now they're going to willingly kill themselves. You uh, Listen, <laughs> as much as I love Roland, I mean as much as I really pull for him, that's fucking crazy. Well, you know, one
0: of the things that I'll, I'd like to point out, I have no practical or pragmatic military experience at all, but I've read a ton of history of battles. And I think, and those of you listening that have pragmatic and military experience, correct me if I'm wrong, but strategically speaking, you should use the terrain to your advantage if Absolutely. you can. Sure. And the thinny is part of the terrain. And it's a part that Roland got to experience and his, his content got to experience before a letigo and the good man's men could experience. And he realized that, Hey, if I have to fight a battle against overwhelming odds, it'd be better if they were next to this.
1: The thing that keeps coming back to me is Roland says it. I'm slow, but I'm, but not, I'm not stupid. stupid. It's, it, it, you know, I think that's another reason why I love Roland. I, I. I I'm going to get a little introspective for a second. Do it. I definitely, as a person throughout my life, have always felt, because of my vocabulary, I mean, I've talked to you about it with this podcast, because of my vocabulary, I'm from Delaware County, from the place I grew up, I've never felt like like an intelligent person, a well-read, educated, I mean, I know I'm educated, like, I I get that, But but, I mean, bear with me for a second. I've always felt that, like, Maybe a little slower But not stupid And when I read Roland I think to myself You know if I had a killer instinct I think I could I think I could connect to him a little bit more And I think The thing I love most about Roland Is that I know he's an empathetic person Because of this book And he's just choosing to hide it So that no one else dies And And when he opens up more people die. Like, wouldn't you, if, if you were opening up to people in your life and and they were all dropping like flies so that you could get to your fucking destination. I mean, how would that make you feel?
0: I mean, I totally agree that Roland to do his quest has to shut down. I totally agree with you. And I also just thank you for sharing that Yeah, I don't, I don't, I I definitely don't really get,
1: I don't mean to be like a sad sack, but I do. I definitely, I see where Roland is coming from from that like I see where maybe sometimes instinct you know we judge a lot of things about people and we judge ourselves especially artists like we are we definitely judge ourselves constantly all the time in a spectrum of things but intelligence and like being slow but not stupid that has stuck with me I mean it's been said a few different times in this book but this is the first time that Roland tells his new content that line and then that, that that stuck with me i just i wanted to
0: share that and i'll say this to roland's self-doubt about his intelligence he's the last gunslinger he's smart enough yeah, to survive
1: how stupid is he
0: i'd like to can i pivot a little bit Definitely. to um a few last points because we are there's oh, they, so much oh, to talk about we
1: knew we were going to talk this much about this book and
0: we are we are fastly running out of the allotted time that we have I want to point out one thing here and I want to point out one of the main philosophical conflicts of both wizard and glass. And I do think the dark tower, which I think is the conflict of both Ka and free will. And the question of, is it Ka or is it free will Roland throughout this entire journey? He comes to possess the glass. Mm -hmm. And when he possesses the glass, it reacts to him differently than it does to anyone else. Everybody else. In the fact that he literally gets to enter it and travel and see his future, his past, his present. We see Susanna's wheelchair. We see Oi impaled. We see roses. We see thunderclap. We see we see
1: Rhea as the Wicked Witch of the East. We get a Wizard of Oz reference. Absolutely.
0: We see all of these things, and it's a bombardment of imagery. And at the end of it, he realizes what his quest is. And I think... He introduces the conflict of Ka, whereas Roland has a choice before they go to the battle when he first sees the glass, the last battle with the oil tankers. He realizes that Susan has been captured and he realizes that he has a choice. I could go back and save Susan. I could go on. And he realizes that Shimi's there and he thinks, okay, Shimi's there so that there's something. And he says, and I'd like to say this quote, No, when we are finished with yonder men, and she finishes with magus, her part in our content ends. Inside the ball, I was given a choice. Susan, and my life as her husband and father of the child she now carries, or the tower. Roland wiped his face with a shaking hand. I would choose Susan in an instant, if not for one thing. The tower is crumbling, and if it falls everything we know will be swept away. There will be chaos beyond our imagination. We must go and we will go. Above his young and unlined cheeks, below his young and unlined brow, were the ancient killer eyes that Eddie Dean would first glimpse in the mirror of an airliner's bathroom. But now they swam with childish tears. There's nothing childish in his voice, however. I choose the tower I must let her live a good life and a long life without, with someone she, with someone else she will in time love. I fucked that up a little bit. As for me, I choose the tower end quote. And sorry for muffling it a little bit there, but that is so fucking hard, dude. I point this quote out Uh. and it spoke to me because Roland can choose his own destiny. He could be with Susan, he could have their child, he could be a good husband, or he could start his quest for the tower. And a few things that stuck out to me. We think of Roland in the time before this story as addicted to the tower, the way Eddie Dean says it, willing to kill a child that he loves for it. But he says it with a shaking hand and childish tears. This choice is not easy for him. It's difficult. However,
1: he makes the choice. You know, we've talked a lot about where Roland, when he gains his soul or when he loses it. I think this is the, of all the decisions he's had to make in this book, this is the hardest decision. This is the decision that takes him from childhood to adulthood. I have to leave the woman that I love more than anything, because the only thing that's bigger than that is saving our existence. Oh, <laughs> yep, it's huge. I mean, that's that's I I, I I can't make that decision at thirty-two. And here's the thing: <laughs> it's not Ka. It's him it's and him, him, him alone. It. And you know what's interesting you bring that up? Because I, I wonder if we should think about Ka moving forward differently because Roland chooses this. He chooses to do this. Now, then again, does he or or is it Ka? I don't know. That, that's for a later discussion. But uh,
0: at least in this moment, he believes he's choosing. And, and I choice, think he does. And I he think does. he does. He sees it and he's just like, the tower, like... I can't sacrifice all existence for my love because I'm a trained warrior. Nay, I am the greatest of all living trained warriors. I must defend existence, and that means I won't love. Sadly, and here's the tragedy, what he doesn't realize in these visions that he has in the glass is that means Susan's
1: death. Right. You know, the one place where it comes back is... At the very end of this book, I'll just mention it briefly. Is we basically get to the Wizard of Oz. Like, there's this really cool thing where, and you brought up earlier, where we're at the point now where our reality and the things that we actually know in our physical world, Derek Steve's human beings, like on Earth, and Roland's world are now. The thinnies are all opening. It's thin. It, it's thin. I mean, the world has really moved on, and where and when are we is completely unclear. So we get to the fucking we, we get to the Emerald City. We see the TikTok man again, who is the Wizard of Oz. Like, whoa, blows my mind. But the one thing I wanted to bring up about this time is that Roland admits that he hasn't loved as much as he loves Eddie. Susanna and Jake and Oi since Susan. And I think that's important because I do believe that Roland cares and loves for his Cotet now as much, if not more, than his original katet.
0: I totally agree with that.
1: Yeah, you know I because totally he, agree. Because he talks about, like, he, he chose them. And so did Ka. But again, Roland chose to do it. And this whole idea, man, you're blowing my mind with this choice thing now. Because I haven't even thought about this. Like, I, I definitely just uh, resign myself to believing that, that Ka is destiny and that's what's going to happen. But, like, Roland, like, you brought this up. Like, the more and more I think about it, he really chooses. Damn, dude. Yeah. He really chooses certain points of time where he's dictating what Ka does. Fuck.
0: Yep. Damn before we get to the conclusion yes there's one last thing two last things actually i want to bring up one sure. i'm going to throw this out here Rio of the Kuz
1: is a fucking vampire. Yeah, she drinks blood. I didn't realize that the first time. No, neither did I. And and in fact, I really didn't even realize it the second time until you were like, yeah, dude, don't you remember the scene where like she cuts the woman's belly open and she's drinking blood and then she's revitalized? And I was like, oh shit, we're about to go into the wolves of the Kala. Of course she's a she's vampire. She's a vampire. We never
0: see her eat regular food. No. Ever. We know she makes potions and healing salts. And drinks groft. And she drinks gruff. But she's a fucking vampire who revitalizes herself on the blood of Cordelia. You
1: know what's crazy? There's this one section right before we started talking about this where, where she actually says, like, I'm dry. Bring me the boy. She's talking about Shimi. I'm like, has she fed on Shimi before? Maybe. I think she might have.
0: And hypnotized him so he doesn't remember? I think remember. she has. Fuck. And I just wanted to point that out because I thought that was a great, great detail that I did not pick up the first time. And the second time I'm like, holy shit. She feeds on blood. Ray is a savage character. And what a great villain. Um, We could do a whole podcast just on Ray. Just on her. And then last thing I have to point out here is the ultimate tragedy of, I think this entire narrative, when we want to talk about how Roland lost his soul. He leaves the barony of Magus broken hearted, but determined for his quest of the tower. It isn't until he sees Rhea with a snake back in Gilead and blows Rhea into pieces in the presence of the, the the Merlin's rainbow to find out that it was his mother holding a belt inscribed with his name.
1: You know, I was hoping that we would get to this because it is, it is the one thing that, King spends the least amount of time on, but I think is one of the most impactful is that Roland actually kills his mother when his mother was trying to offer him a peace treaty. And
0: his mother was hiding in her shame. We come to find out that his mother was trying to still kill his father and was going to use a poison blade to Mm -hmm. kill him. And Roland stops that plot because he has the glass and he goes to his mother one last time and Rhea uses her glam charms to make him see something that's not there, and he murders his mom. Four shots. In cold blood. From those
1: sandalwood grips. Could you imagine the amount of damage that did to her?
0: And it's significant that he uses his father's weapons Absolutely. to kill his mother. There is a reverse Oedipal nature to this, you know, the yeah. Oedipal complex, yeah. where Freud pros- like, thought that boys... <laughs> wanted to kill their fathers to possess their mothers. In this, we see Roland, to be close to his father, obliterate his mother. And I think there is no greater symbol of the world moving on than the greatest knight of Gilead, of the affiliation, being a matricide. Mm.
1: That's some heavy shit, dude. That's a fucking
0: tragedy, man. It is a tragedy. I
1: mean, Roland's Roland's story. He's a tragic hero. There's no question. I totally agree. There's no question. Yeah. Well,
0: I think there's still more to say. Um, we, I think we barely scratched the surface of this book. Maybe there'll be some blogs. If you guys want us to talk about this book more, let us know. But this has been a blast. We are just a public
1: service announcement we're gonna do wins in the keyhole next. Right, we're gonna do four point five next. We hit somebody on the internet had requested that we that we do it, and I would like to honor that. So with Derek, and I know Laura would as well. And I think it's it's important. You know, I it's weird for me because it was written so many years after the series had ended, but I think it's appropriate. And if somebody wants it, we're gonna do it. And you
0: know, we didn't we were gonna read it no matter what and right. talk about it and we didn't want it to be the last episode of the wheel of Ka was wins in the keyhole. So wins in the keyhole is next for those of you reading along, pick that up. Uh, you can find it. You can find the whole series on our website, www.midnightmyth.com. Find the wheel of Ka episodes. We have an Amazon affiliate link to it.
1: And And, and again, check out the new designs from Laurel for for the wheel of cost stuff. I mean, she's, she sent us the dark tower. When I freaked out, I was like, I will absolutely, I wear my wheel of ca t-shirt multiple times. I told Derek the story. I was at the Chinese lantern festival with Rebecca and a couple of our friends. And I thought I heard a woman come up and she was like, Oh honey, look, that's the, that's the wheel of car podcast. So like, if you, if you do love this, buy a t-shirt, buy a mug. I drink out of my mug almost every morning. We're really proud of this podcast. We hope you're enjoying it. And if if you're as proud as we are, show some love. Buy a couple t-shirts, buy a couple mugs. Shit's hard out there. Times are hard. We all got to make money, right? We we all got to make money, and this is a great way to do it because you're supporting two people who really put their their love, their heart, their soul and their their valuable time into it. So check out the website I, I, you fooled me. I forgot that we were doing the wind of the keyhole next. I was like, I was about to be like, yes, we're moving on to the wolves of Kala, guys. We're, we're, we're moving on, but we're not, we're going to do, we're going to, it's quick, you know, it's quick. So we'll probably get it through quickly. And and I'm looking forward to doing this again, man. Hell yeah. As always
0: fellow travelers on the path of the beam until next time, long days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant
1: nights.